Well, um, as Will said, we've come to the end of our Exodus series. I think it's been really, really wonderful. It, well, I don't know if it's been wonderful for you guys, but SBF, it's been really great. The sermons have been fantastic. I've really enjoyed um, looking at God's deliverance worked out over the last few weeks. We've come to know what God is like, haven't we? We've come to know that he hears our cries, that he remembers his promises, and he knows and sees our suffering. And not only that, he acts in history to save us. In fact, chapter 18, verse 8, have a look at it there, provides us with a pretty handy summary of what God has done so far. Have a look at it, verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. It's been a story of God's deliverance. I've been personally struck by how quick I am to grumble and forget how powerful God is, how capable God is to deliver us. In the stress of life, my problems get very, very big, and God gets very, very small. But Exodus has reminded me that God is bigger than anything that may come my way. As Moses says, through all the hardship, the Lord had delivered them. They may have been delivered from the sword of Pharaoh and from the starvation in the wilderness, but they're not out of the woods yet. As we read uh, on we find that Amalek Amalek responds um, towards them with violence. We see that in chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. First of all, we're going to look at the Amalekite response. Not everyone was as excited as me about God's deliverance. As the news of Israel's deliverance reached the ears of Amalek, they chose to attack the Israelites. This decision kind of makes sense on a worldly level. Uh, Resources are tight in the desert. When three million people enter your region, there's going to be a conflict at some point. You might as well strike when they're not organized, when they're weak. I read a quote from a Chinese general, Sun Tzu, this week in his book, The Art of War, and he says this, avoid what is strong and strike what is weak. There's kind of a wisdom, a worldly wisdom, in striking when Israel is at their weakest. And this is exactly what um, Amalek does. Verse 8, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. We're not sure exactly where Rephidim is, but we do know that it was a barren wasteland. Have a look at verse 1, 17 verse 1. There was no water there. On the surface of things, they had nothing to fear. The Israelites were weak, a bunch of refugees untrained in war. They'd been slaves for 400 years. They're sitting ducks. Except they hadn't been paying attention to the God of Israel. They hadn't been paying attention to what he said back in chapter 9, verse 16. In the middle of his fight with Pharaoh, he said to Pharaoh, 
I could have knocked you out already, but it was for this purpose that I raised you up, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, God had displayed his power and his protection for the Israelites, amazingly, in Egypt. But they had missed the memo. They were just looking on the surface of things. The Israelites were weak, and they forgot that they had a powerful God behind them. And they should really back off, because this God is scary and to be feared. As it turned out, what appeared to be really sensible was actually really stupid. And it wasn't that Israel was strong, they weren't. And it wasn't that Moses was a great general. Have a look at his fantastic idea in verse 9. Choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek. Great plan, Moses. (laughs) And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Wonderful. Is a real Napoleon this one? There's no strategy. There's a simple command and a trust in God. After all, this was the staff that God had used to turn the Nile into blood. This was the staff that God had used to split the sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. And it was the staff that God used to provide water for the Israelites in the wilderness. Way back in chapter 3, God had told Moses to take this staff with him, for it, for through it he would perform mighty signs. The staff of God was a symbol of God's presence and protection over his people. And Moses puts his trust in that. He's really weak, verse 12. His friends have to lift his hands up. He can't, yeah, he can't even hold his hands up. <clears throat> but he manages with their help to hold his hands up long enough. For verse 13, Joshua to overcome Amalek and his people with the sword. In verses 14 to 16, God declares war on Amalek. He says there, I will utterly blot out Amalek from under heaven. This is to be written down, read out to um, Joshua. Moses sets up an altar and says, the Lord will make war with Amalek from generation to generation. God is dedicating himself to the destruction of Amalek. And this is actually quite an important theme in the Old Testament. As the Old Testament rolls on, we see that Amalek is always at war with God. Amalek becomes a symbol of Godward aggression. It epitomizes the nation that is anti-God and anti-his people. So in Deuteronomy 25, maybe you'd like to turn there. I like to hear pages flicking. Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 to 19. Moses there reminds the Israelites as they are about to enter the land that they should remember what Amalek did and destroy them. Something of verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. 
Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Well, they did forget. And throughout the period of the judges, Amalek wages war against Israel. Eventually, they ask for a king and they get Saul. And one of the first things that Saul is told to do as the new king is to utterly blot out Amalek. We read again, turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. One Samuel fifteen verse one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way, when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But Saul disobeys, he keeps the king Agag alive. And when Samuel finds out in verse 32, he's furious. And we read there in verse 34, Samuel hacked King Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. I know, right? <laughs> Years later, while Israel are living under Persian rule, an Agagite by the name of Haman comes along and he tries to kill all of the Jews in the book of Esther. Amalek equals anti-God stuff. The anti-God nation. Amalek, in fact, comes up before all of that. He is the grandson of Esau. Remember Esau, who opposed God's promise, gave it up for a bowl of soup? Amalek equals Esau. Amalek equals the one that God hates. He represents everything that is opposed to God and his people. So in the Old Testament, the response of Amalek to the saving purposes of God is rebellion. That's our first response. The Amalekite response. Rebellion. And I'd advise against that response because God is dedicated to destroy Amalek. And yet, as we see in Australia, it is the road most traveled, but we'll get there in a little a little bit later. A better response is that of the Midianites. So we'll think about Jethro, the priest of Midian, for a little while, beginning at verse eight, uh, in chapter 18 in Exodus. Turn back there, if you're not there. Jethro hears about the deliverance of God, and he decides that he's got to see it for himself. He's been looking after Zipporah and the boys, and he decides it's time for a family reunion. They arrive at the mountain of God after he sends a text or something to Moses in verse 6. I'm on my way. Moses comes out, verse 7, greets him and welcomes him into his tent. You can picture the scene. It's great you've come, Moses. Uh, Jethro. Maybe Moses is a little nervous because it's his father-in-law, but uh, 
we have tea, we have coffee, we have manna. Um, Jethro's like, what is it? And Moses says, yeah, exactly. Anyway, they sit down. What is this stuff? And Moses begins to tell them, tell him in verse 8, all of what God has done, the deliverance of God in verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered him. It's a beautiful little example of evangelism. Moses has experienced the deliverance of God and now he shares it with his family. But look look at Jethro's response in verses 9 and 10. He rejoices. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He rejoices. And in verse 11, Jethro responds by acknowledging God's power and God's greatness. It says in verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair he dealt in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And in verse 12, he does something that neither Moses nor the elders thought to do. Even though in chapter 3, 5, 8, and 10, this was the very reason why God delivered them out of Israel. Out of Egypt, sorry. God delivered them out of Egypt so that they would sacrifice to him in the wilderness. Do you remember that if you've been reading along? Well, it turns out that they were too busy to make sacrifices to the Lord, and it's left to a foreigner. This is the first time where a sacrifice is made to the Lord. He makes the sacrifice and enjoys fellowship as he celebrates God's deliverance. Now, please bear in mind at this point, because it's really important for us as non-Jews, that this guy is from Midian. He's not a Jew. But 12 times in these verses, really superfluously, every time Jethro is mentioned, it is said that he is Moses' father-in-law. This Midianite, this foreigner, is a member of the family of God. Because he responds to God's salvation appropriately. He rejoices, he acknowledges who God is, and he makes a sacrifice to the Lord. And this is a wonderful reminder that anyone who acknowledges God for who he is and rejoices at his salvation Anyone who does that belongs to the family of God. The promise that God made to Abraham always included the nations. And Galatians reminds us that the law was only given for a time. The promise was eternal. This is the way that people become God's people. They receive God's deliverance with joy. You don't have to be Jewish to live under the protection of Yahweh. Now, this is what Israel Folau made clear in his post. 
No one's focusing on it. But right down the bottom of that post, he said, only Jesus saves. Salvation does not come by doing great things, by avoiding all of the sins that he mentioned. Salvation comes by receiving the salvation of God. So let's think about the Australian response for a little while. We've mentioned Israel Flau. The Australian response is a mixed one. Um, I remember sharing the gospel with someone a couple of years ago, and when I explained it to him, he said, wow, that is amazing. And I was taken back because I don't really get excited about very much, but he was absolutely right. Some people in our country, when they hear the gospel, they get really excited, just like Jethro. But by and large, the Australian media and the Australian population are fiercely opposed to God. There is a strain of Amalek uh, within them. We've seen this most recently in the Israel Falau Israel case, but it was there beforehand, and unless God chooses that he's had enough with it, it'll probably continue um, into the future. But this week, I have been really interested by the GoFundMe thing. Have you guys been following this? So GoFundMe um, took down Israel Folau's page, and then the Australian Christian Lobby stepped in and set up another uh, page to give people an opportunity to stand with Izzy. Uh, it was really great. Loads of people gave to and got behind uh, this. But And Martin Isles, who's the director of the um, Australian Christian Lobby, um, you know, inundated, inundated with interviews, got on everything. Did you guys, did you guys see this? Anyway, if you didn't, um, Google it. It's been really interesting and fascinating. And Martin Isles has done a really good job of standing up for Israel and sharing the gospel there. But I think he's right that people gave to this Israel Folau thing because there is a general feeling among Christians and among people who stand with Israel Folau that Australia is against us. There is a pitch. He said there's a... Um, we are feeling the pinch of political correctness. And I think that's right. I think... Um, we do feel the pinch of political correctness. Uh, I feel it. And for that reason, I personally feel stifled, like I'm not able to share the reality of God's commitment to destroy wickedness or the reality of God's salvation in the Lord Jesus. Especially in the workplace, I think this is true. And there is a general cultural pressure towards us to shut up and to get in line and to let the louder cultural voices dictate what we should say and do. And I want to say that these pressures aren't like Amalek's slaughtering us in the, in the wilderness, but it is a real opposition to God and it is a real opposition to us. And Australian Christians need to respond wisely. And I just want to offer six 
responses that um, we might make in our context. The first five are taken from what we've already looked at, and then the last one is taken from verses 13 to 27. Um, firstly, Amalek teaches us that God is committed to punishing the wicked. So everyone at your workplace is bound for hell without the Lord Jesus. God is committed to that. Secondly, Moses teaches us that God works through weak servants who trust him. So you know, you may not know what to say, you may feel the pinch of political correctness as I do, but God loves to use weak and foolish people like Moses and like you and I to shame the strong and the wise ones of the world. Third, God's deliverance teaches us that we may be weak, but we are not alone. Moses was supported by Aaron and her, and we have one another. But more importantly than that, the Lord is with us. And in his strength, there is nothing that can stop us. We are able to overcome evil with good. Fourth, Amalek and Jethro teach us that God is the greatest. He is on his throne. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, no matter what our society wants to tell us. We have nothing to fear because God is our protector. Fifth, <clears throat> Jethro's response reminds us that God's deliverance is wonderful. It really is wonderful, and it's worth rejoicing about. I've really loved watching um, the Indian... the Indian fans in the, in, in the Cricket World Cup and the Pakistani fans in the Cricket World Cup. They are just, they go completely nuts when anything exciting happens. And that's exactly right. When something exciting has happened, when the reality is that something wonderful has happened, the right response is to go nuts for it. It's to celebrate and rejoice. And friends, something wonderful has happened. Our God is a deliverer, and there is salvation in the Lord Jesus. Perhaps we lose sight of that. I know I do. And like Moses, he needs an outsider to come in and set his perspective right, to realize how good it is to have a God who saves. And sixthly, our response to pressure is to sit under God's word Remembering that God is God and we are not. I think that's what verses 13 to 27 are all about. We respond to pressure by sitting under God's word, remembering that God is God and we are not. Have a look there. On the surface of things, it looks like a, just a simple lesson in management, delegation that sort of thing. And it kind of is, in a sense, but the placement of this story here 
makes Jethro more than just like a management consultant. But this is God's man telling Moses what he needs to know in order to to prepare Israel to receive the law. That's what happens in verse in 19 and 20. This is God's man preparing Israel to receive God's law, to sit under God's law. And his advice is really good advice, and it contains important pointers to what the purpose of the law is. So first of all, the law was given <coughs> so that the nations would be impressed by God's wisdom. As they witnessed the behavior of the Israelites, they would say, wow, their God must be really wise. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, uh, Moses says this, See, I, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. The purpose of the law was for God to show off how wise he is through the Israelites. But at this point in their nation's history, Israel was not wise. They had to rely upon this foreigner, Jethro, to come in and tell them how to organize themselves. And perhaps this passage is here to illustrate how amazing God's law is, what the incredible turnaround is for the Israelites. There's nothing special about them. They were actually pretty foolish. Their leader believed that he was in control and single-handedly could judge three million people in the wilderness. <clears throat> but God chose them and gave them the law and it demonstrates his mercy. That could be a reason why it's here. But a stronger reason why it's here, I reckon, is that without wisdom, the law will not have its desired effect. Without wisdom, the law doesn't work. And so here this example of wisdom comes before the giving of the law. Have a look at verse 23. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go uh, to their place in peace. If you do this, in other words, if you are wise, God will direct you, Jethro says. Without wisdom, the law does nothing but deceives a person. The law kills if you think it's going to save you. Wasn't that the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees? They didn't have wisdom when it came to the law. They tithed their herbs, but they, they neglected the weightier matters of the law. It's just as Paul said to Timothy, the scriptures are able to make one wise for salvation. So moving on to... The scene itself. You can picture it. That's why it's there. But let's have a look at it. Jethro wakes up, verse 1. 
to the noise of people screaming at the top of their lungs. His bull attacked my son. She slept with my wife. He slept with my wife. Uh, He stole my sheep. His donkey bit my ass. Um, I have a rash. Um, What can I do about it? Type thing. They're all going berserk, and he barges through the crowd, and there's Moses in the middle of them with his head in his hands, about to have a panic attack. And he thinks, oh, this is not good. And he pulls him aside and identifies the problem and offers a solution. The problem is there in verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourself out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And the solution, get some godly men to help you out. And let God's word do the work for you. So, verse 24, Moses is wise enough to take his advice. He listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Moses needed to know himself, and he needed to know his God. He needed to know that he is weak and finite and can't be everywhere at once, and he needs help. On a personal level, when we are aware, or when I am aware, Uh, that I am limited and weak, I look to God for guidance. But when I think that I have everything covered and by my own wisdom and strength, I'm going to do all of this wonderful stuff, well, that's when I lose sight of God and I lose sight of his salvation. So Jethro is concerned for Moses' well-being. Jethro understands that men are not God that men get tired and grow weary. And in verse 22, he he says, Appoint people. It will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Now, as I read that verse, alarm bells went off for me. I wonder if they did you, bearing the burdens. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul tells us that we ought to bear one another's burdens. And listen to this. This is really fascinating. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating to me that before the law of Moses was given, Jethro brought the law of Christ to Moses. Jethro loved his son, a son-in-law, and ensured that his burden would be shared among the people. I found that really interesting. But secondly, it's good for the people. It's not just good for Moses, it's good for the people. It's good for the people because the people get better access to God's word. So verse 22 again. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they'll bring to you, but any small matter 
they shall decide themselves. As important as Moses was, he couldn't be everywhere at once. This way, God's word could rule over his people at all times. The people have greater access to the commands and statutes of the Lord. And in this way, it becomes crystal clear that God is, not, is in charge, not Moses. God's people live under God's word, not under the rule of Moses. So pulling that all together, um, as the law of God was brought to the people, the wise Israelite would sit under God's word and learn that God is fiercely protective of his people. They would gain knowledge of themselves and knowledge of God's wisdom. They would recognize that they are weak and rebellious and unable to please God. They would rejoice in the salvation of God and abandoning their own worldly wisdom, they would live under God's word and share God's wisdom with the nations. And I think this is the key for living wisely in the world where we are now. <clears throat> the world thinks that God's word and God's law is foolish. But no, it isn't. It is wise. And if we sit under God's, God's word, recognize that God is God and we are not, sharing the wisdom of God among the nations, then God will deliver more and more people. And how wonderful would that be? In the end, the wise person looks to Christ. For they know that in and of themselves, they are Amalek, through and through. As our New Testament reading, uh, 1 Corinthians, made clear, we preach Christ and him crucified, which is folly to the Jews who demand... Uh, um, it's weak to the Jews who demand power, and it's folly to the Greeks who demand wisdom. But for those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, Christ becomes the wisdom of God for us. Beginning at verse 28, and we'll end here. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. The wise person acknowledges that it is because of him that they are in Christ Jesus, who has become for them the wisdom of God. That is, verse 29, their righteousness, holiness, and redemption, so that we boast in God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your greatness and power. We rejoice in your wisdom and love and the redemption that you have won for us in the Lord Jesus. The man who is our righteousness, holiness and deliverance. Enable us by your spirit to honour you in our thoughts and words and actions and to serve you in every aspect of our lives. 
making known your wisdom among the nations. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.